During World War I in the winter of 1914 on the battlefields of Flanders, one of the most unusual events in all of human history took place. The Germans had been in a fierce battle with the British and the French. Both sides were dug in, safe in muddy, man-made trenches six to eight feet deep that seemed to go on forever. German troops all of a sudden began to put small Christmas trees lit with candles outside of their trenches. Then they began to sing songs. Across the way in the no man's land between them came songs from the British and French troops. Incredibly, many of the Germans who had worked in England before the war were able to speak good enough English to propose a Christmas truce. Signboards arose up and down the trenches in a variety of shapes. They were usually in English or from the Germans in fractured English. You know fight, we know fight was the most frequently employed German message. Some British units improvised Merry Christmas banners. A spontaneous truce resulted. Soldiers left their trenches meeting in the middle to actually shake hands. The first order of business was to bury the dead who had been previously unreachable because of the conflict. Then they exchanged gifts. Chocolate cake, cognac, postcards, newspapers, tobacco. In a few places along the trenches, soldiers exchanged their rifles for soccer balls and actually began to play soccer together. It didn't last forever. In fact, some of the generals didn't like it at all and commanded their troops to resume shooting at one another. After all, they were in a war. Soldiers eventually did resume shooting at each other, but only after, in a number of cases, a few days of wasting rounds of ammunition shooting at the stars in the sky instead of the soldiers on the opposing army across the field. For a few precious moments, there was peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and all because the focus was on Christmas. This is a true story. It's not one that's been made up. It's a heartwarming story that you would think it's so heartwarming that it had to have been conjured. But it's a true story. And it's cool that Christmas can have that effect of a few days of peace between real legitimate enemies. Today, though, we're going to look at something even better than a Christmas holiday celebration. That's even more lasting than a few days and even deals with enemies that are more at odds with each other than Germans and British and French. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We've been in Ephesians chapter 2 for these last, at least this last week. We resumed in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. I'm going to read just a couple of verses there, verses 11 and 12, and then we're going to focus our rest of our morning on verses 13 through 16. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Last week, we spent the entire morning really just considering these first two verses, 11, verse 11 and 12, dealing with the Gentile problem or the Gentile lot, we called it last week. Five terrible realities. They are separated from Christ. They are alienated from Israel. They are strangers to the covenants of promise. They have no hope, and they are without God in the world. One of the things we considered last week is it's a terrible development if we've spent some time exposing each of those five things and then dealt with the hard reality that we're not talking about a they as much as we are also talking about an us because we are just as much Gentiles as they were. And apart from Christ and before Christ, these five terrible things are also our lot. So it was a very personal, practical message for us to consider last week. And the only imperative of that passage last week, and the only imperative that goes through the rest of the chapter, is this one word, remember. Remember. 
Remember these things, Gentiles, in the Ephesian church. Remember these five things. You were separate from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope or without hope, and without God in the world. The argument could be made that that one imperative continues down through the rest of the paragraph all the way through the end of the chapter, since it's the only imperative. I think, though, what's going on there is Paul saying, remember these things, Gentile, Gentiles, and now know these things we're going to be considering today. Remember what you were and now know what has been done for you. We're going to break this passage up this morning in verse 13 and then verses 14 through 16. And I'm going to expose them in that uh, manner. And then we're going to close with just a couple of application points. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's phrase there being far off is shorthand for what he's just developed in the verse before. Those five terrible things being far off is the way that he summarizes those five terrible things. And he begins this passage with two words that are strangely familiar to the two cherished words a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He develops the reality that you are crossways with God and you are dead at the bottom of the ocean. But he introduces these beautiful words in verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ. But God were two cherished words for us when we were in chapter 2, verse 4, and dealing with verses 1 through 10. And these two words here, but now, are just as cherished. First of all, they tell us, they signal the reality that these five terrible things in verse 12 are past tense. Here's what you were, but now things have changed. But now you're in a different state. But now that's not your lot. Two cherished words, but now something wonderful has happened that reversed those five terrible realities. And the agent of change was just one thing, Christ's precious, expensive blood. Through his blood, the far off have been brought near. One of the things that we can enjoy together, too, is this brought near verb is in the passive voice. It indicates and tells us that this but now work is just like the but God work of verse 4, where God takes the initiative. It's not something we could do any more than we're dead on the bottom of the ocean. We could fix ourselves. But God, through Christ, dove down there, dug us up, dragged us off the bottom of the ocean, revived us and gave us life. But now, God dove into the Gentile problem and reversed the five terrible problems for the Gentiles. Through Christ's blood, God intervened in the Gentile mess. Even the best of the Gentiles couldn't muster a solution to those five problems. God took the initiative. And how did he do that? That's how we're going to spend the rest of the morning in verses 14 through 16. How did he do this? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. First, I want to deal with two things that he did that are here in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15. And those two things, the first of which is that he made us both one. Before that, though, there's a little phrase here that's important to point out. You'll see it in your New Testaments, frequently in Paul. It's a device that Paul uses to call attention to who he's talking about. The words there, he himself... Just think for a moment and realize he could have said, for he is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He could have said, he is our peace, but he didn't. He said, he 
Himself is our peace. It may seem like a small thing, but it's a device that Paul used to call attention to Christ being the only solution to the Gentile problem. He himself is the answer to peace. Not education, not a village, not money, not everything that we might think in our context that we can throw at a problem. The only problem for the Gentile, or the only solution for the Gentile problem was he himself, Christ. He himself is our Jew and Gentile peace. The first of two things that he did is right here. He made us both one. The tense of the verb in the Greek here is what's called an aorist tense. It means that it's happened in past tense. It's a word that I've used before, the word punctiliar. You don't have to think real hard to think about what that means. A punctiliar would have to be like a period, like it happened at a point in time. Aorist tense, you Jew and Gentile were made one. He's emphasizing the point that he himself, Christ, became our peace and made us both one. Not today, not tomorrow, not in some future event, but in one past tense event. And that's when Christ's blood was shed that brought the near or the far to the near. That's where it accomplished or that's where it was accomplished. And it was accomplished fully past tense. He's not emphasizing something that needs to be done of making peace between Jew and Gentile. He's emphasizing something that has already been accomplished. Now, I want to give sort of a bird's eye understanding, bird's eye explanation of where this thing is going this morning. I think this is the right time in the, in the sermon. It's something that's going to give you sort of a, a big picture of the point. Okay? It's something you can hold on to in these next few minutes. What Paul is developing here and in the rest of the passage is this, that Christ has earned peace between believing Jew and Gentile and between God and man. If you as families and you as life groups did what I asked you to do this week, and you studied verses 1 through 10, you know that the point of verses 1 through 10 is about God making peace between you and God. Vertically, if you want to get some sort of spatial reference. It's about God making vertical peace between you and God. That's verses 1 through 10. Verses 11 through 22 deal with an altogether different peace. He's not talking vertically right there. He's talking horizontally. I'm going to say this sentence again because I want you to understand what's being said in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Christ has earned peace between believing Jew and Gentile and between God and believing man. But here's the remarkable thing about these passages, this verses 11 through 12. The emphasis in verses, excuse me, 11 through 22, the emphasis is on the horizontal peace. Okay, I'm just going to let you sit there with that for a minute because your minds are probably going, okay, well, why is that important? I don't really get this, but it must be really important because he's allowing this pregnant, awkward moment, which I'm totally comfortable with. Doesn't bother me at all. Here in this passage, verse 11 through 22, he has shifted gears from dealing with vertical peace to dealing with horizontal peace. And the emphasis here is the primary peace that's earned is the horizontal peace. Here's the crazy scandal of what's being developed in this passage here. Paul is showing the peace one is primarily between Jew and Gentile and secondarily between humankind and God. This passage is remarkable. It's shocking if you see the order of what he's talking about. He's placing horizontal peace between Jew and Gentile as more important, at least in these verses, than vertical peace between God and man. Here the emphasis is on the peace earned and the peace won between Jew and Gentile. Do you realize that the peacemaking work of the cross is reconciling his people Jew and Gentile, that it's reconciling the people of every tribe, every tongue, every race, 
every socioeconomic strata. It's reconciling people that are tattooed, people that are not, people that are pierced, people that are not, people that are big, people that are small, people that are blue-collar, people that are white-collar, people that are introvert, and yes, even people that are extroverts. I should have said the other way around. Even Yes, even the introverted can be reconciled. That's the emphasis right here over the vertical piece that was achieved through the cross. This horizontal piece, this bodybuilding piece, this Jew and Gentile piece that was earned through the cross. That's his emphasis. Man, I just want, to, I want you to sit on that for a minute. I want it to hit you for a moment. Have you ever seen that emphasized above and beyond the vertical piece that Christ earned for us with our God, our Creator? This is a unique passage. And here's the reality. This horizontal piece that Christ earned for us, that He won through us for us in spilling His blood and bringing the far near is just as much the good news as the vertical piece won, through us, won for us through Christ. You ever heard an evangelist develop that part of it for you? Have you ever heard a pastor develop it that, that, that for you? I can't say that I've heard an emphasis on this horizontal peace winning work of the cross. But that's what Paul is giving the Ephesian church, a mixture of Jew and Gentile. That's the rest of the good news for them. Of course he's emphasizing the peace won vertically between God and man. But he's also emphasizing, and in this passage, emphasizing more so the peace-winning work of the cross between Jew and Gentile. That's the first thing he did. He made Jew and Gentile one. Man. The second thing. Now, that's, I want to get the exact wording right because we're going to deal with the rest of this passage perfectly or, uh, uh, faithfully. He made us both one. Yes, past tense. Now, here's the second thing. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that are expressed in ordinances. Now, this is a tricky little section. It's tricky. I have, I would say, probably 10 different commentaries on Ephesians. And of those 10 different commentaries, I would say there are four or five different views on what's actually going down here or what's actually going on here. Some think that this is referring to an actual physical wall in the temple in Jerusalem. See, there was actually a physical wall in the temple in Jerusalem between the inner courts and the outer court of the Gentiles. And there's a sign on this wall that read, No foreigner is to go beyond the wall in the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will ensue. It's a long sign, apparently. Really big. Apparently. Lots, lots of verbiage going on there. But the point being, Gentiles don't go any further than this. You keep your nasty, vile selves out there in the Gentile court. Some people think that that's what's going on here, that that's what Paul is referring to. But remember, Paul's writing to a bunch of Ephesians who live in Ephesus. It's unclear whether they would even have an awareness of the layout of the temple back in Jerusalem. And also, that temple wall, or that wall in the temple is still standing. A.D. 70 hadn't come yet, and the temple hadn't been destroyed. Some people think that that's what he's talking about, an actual physical wall. Other people, though, think that what he's talking about there is the distortions of the law that the Jews had been guilty of over time. See, there's a little distortion. That it, there's there's a, a, a twisting of the law that had taken place over time with the, with the Jews. Listen to a couple of passages, give you some, some context. This is in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what the law should have been. You can jot this passage down and look at it later. You can just listen. You don't have to look there. Listen to this. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Listen to this. This is Moses writing to Israel before they go into the promised land where there's a bunch of Gentiles. Okay, a little context. Now, this is written 1,500 years before Christ. Okay, the, the Jews, this is at the end of the wilderness wanderings. The, the nation of Israel is, we could call them an infant. 
They're 40 years old, if you want to call their, their birth through the Exodus. Okay? And Moses is reminding them of this. Listen. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before, before you today? See, what was intended for the law to be, or what God intended the law to be among Israel to the nations was an attractant, like a beacon, like the nations and all the ites in the promised land would all see this law and say, what God in the world is it? that has such great laws? And what nation in the world is it that has such great statutes and rules? That's what the law was supposed to be. Think about when Solomon dedicated the temple, the first temple. Solomon prayed this prayer at the dedication of the temple. This would have been about 500 years later, approximately. Okay. He says, when a foreigner who is not of your people of Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, what you may not realize is that Israel was always supposed to be a light to the nations. Israel was always supposed to be a beacon to the nations. Israel was always supposed to draw the nations. And the law was to be the thing that they're holding up as the light, as the beacon. And they come to the temple. It's supposed to be this welcoming context. But what had happened over this 1,500-year development, this 1,000-year development after Solomon's prayer, is that the law had become a hedge around God's people instead of a beacon attracting the nations. A hedge to protect us from those nasty old Gentiles. And in fact, here's what's crazy. Solomon's temple didn't have a court of the Gentiles. Let that hit you for a minute. It's Herod's temple that was built around the time of Christ. That had a court of the Gentiles. Let's keep those nasty old Gentiles out there. Solomon, man, is bring them on. Now, they were never welcome in the temple if they were uncircumcised. But they were supposed to be an attractant to the nations. But the law had become an obstacle to the nations by the time of Christ. By the time Paul is referring to it. And it had become actual hostility to the nations. What is clear whether we're talking about the ceremonial law or we're talking about the entire law itself or we're talking about an age, those are the different philosophies on what's being referred to here. What is clear, whatever unclarity we may have there, what is clear is it was a hostile separation, whether we're talking about a physical wall or metaphor. And the peace developed here, though, what Paul is talking about, is not just the absence of hostility, but real acceptance and friendship between Jew and Gentile. Bring them out of their trenches from the opposite sides of the field and make them actual friends. Connect them to one another through what Christ has done. This peace that Christ is and this peace that Christ earned was true acceptance and friendship. It wasn't just the, the um, absence of hostility. It was true acceptance and friendship. And he uses the word oneness. True oneness with Christ and with each other. That's what he did. That's what he did. He made Jew and Gentile one and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between the two. Now, he gives us two reasons he did it. There's a purpose clause in here, a little henna clause. I've talked to you about before about a little henna clause. The, the ESV does a nice job of saying in order that or for the purpose of. And here it is right here in this passage. Look at verse 15. It's fine to go back to it myself. He's made us both one in verse 14. He's broken down the, his, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. Look at that, that. That's a henna clause. That's a purpose clause. He did that 
in order that he might do two things. First, create in himself one new man. And second, in verse 16, that he would reconcile us both to God. Let's just take a brief look at these. These are beautiful. In verse 15, the first purpose of what he's up to, of why he made us both one, why he broke down the dividing wall. The first is to create in himself one new man in place of the two. See, here's what's going on. He's not talking about the notion of the Gentiles somehow becoming Jewish. He's not saying, let's get all these guys circumcised and make them Jews. And he's not talking about, okay, Jews, we want you to drop all your standards and all your Jewish practices and now become like a bunch of Gentiles. What he's saying here is something altogether different. He's talking about the Gentiles in Christ and the Jews in Christ forming an entirely new people. It would be like bringing the German and British and French soldiers to the middle of the battlefield and saying, take off your uniforms, all of you. I'm giving you a new uniform, and it's the same. You have no trenches to go back to. I'm forming a whole new army of you. That's what he's done. And that army, it has a name. And guess what the name of that army is? It's called the church. It's us. One uniform. No trenches. No sides. That's what he's done. He created in himself one new man. A new humanity is how he treats it in Ephesians. A raceless race. Let that hit you. That gives me, just, just hearing it, hearing it said gives me goosebumps. A raceless race is this army that's in the middle of the battlefield. It's not a battlefield anymore. It's called the church. Man, the second thing, the second thing that he's up to, that's the first thing. That's the first reason of why he did all this, to make a new man. And the second reason is to now reconcile that new man to God, thereby killing the hostility. So we're still dealing with the vertical part of it as well. They go together. The horizontal peace that's earned through Christ is now dealt with vertically, and he's going to reconcile that people together, that raceless race together through Christ's work. Now, here's the marble, and we're going to go to some application. He's even better than Christmas and a few days of peace on a battlefield. Jesus stepped into an completely hostile environment. The word hostility is used twice in this passage. And the first time it's dealing with horizontal hostility between Jew and Gentile. And the second time it's dealt with dealing with hostility between God and man. Jesus stepped into and took the initiative and intervened into a completely hostile environment. And he earned and brought peace by the blood of Christ spilled, bringing the far to the near. By the body of Christ, broken as he breaks down the dividing wall between the two. And by the cross that reconciles both Jew and Gentile to God. It's all the good news, people. It's all the good news. Now, application. Just a couple of thoughts on application. First, how can we walk in this? If we're just going to, if this is to be more than an academic venture, if this is more than a seminary class, and this is the people of God being equipped for the work of service, I hope you view that's what we've been doing this morning. I don't entertain, I don't do talky talks. I only tell story, really, I just started doing that, frankly, just to kind of help you listen. I used to not even do that, so. <laughs> I'm just trying to help you listen and, equip and make you realize you're being equipped for something. And that something may start this afternoon. Or it may be tomorrow. But it's going to be. You're going to have an opportunity to walk in it. So here's the first way you can walk in it. First of all, I want to make no assumptions about anybody in this room today. Here's the first way to appropriately, appropriately fittingly walk in what's been accomplished through the peacemaking work of Christ. By faith, 
unite to Christ and receive and reap His peacemaking benefits both vertically and horizontally. The entry into this peaceful place is one Jesus wide. That's the dimensions of that gate. It's narrow and it's one Jesus wide. It's the only way in. And you place your faith and your trust in Christ. If you haven't done that before, do it today. Do it right now. If you believe that He is who He says He is, if you believe that what you've heard this morning is true, and you've never said, Lord, I want to appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It sounds like He got something done on that cross. Horizontally, and vertically, and I want to reap the benefits of that by faith, then unite to Christ by faith right here, right now. You can do that. I want to make no assumptions. Do that right here, right now. That's the first way you can walk in it if you haven't done that. The second way you can walk in this is that there should be no distinctions among us in the church. None. No distinctions among us. In the church. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We can sing together with the Jew, Father Abraham. We can just bust out in song with it right now and mean it. Father Abraham had many sons. That's our song too. In fact, it's more, more our song now. Man, that's good news. There are no distinctions in the church. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Do you like being part of a people like that where there are no distinctions? I do. No classes. Man, no favoritism. No discriminating. We're just all His. Man, I want to be part of something like that. I love that. And here's where I want to spend the last few moments just considering this. An application, a way to walk in this. We, the church, should work at maintaining the peace that's already been won. We should work at it. We should work at maintaining what has already been won. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when someone in the church chaps you. If it hadn't happened already, this must be your first day. And the day's but young. Man, it's going to happen. But the beauty is in the church today, in our context, what we're talking about are micro differences. What the Jew and Gentile had to deal with were macro differences. We have micro differences. Here's a few I came up with. And if anybody feels a little bit like, I'm sending a zinger here. There are no zingers. This is a zingerless list. It might affect you, but it affects other people too. It might affect me. Who knows? I'm just sharing a list of ways that we might differ. Okay? So this is a no hurt feeling zone these next few minutes. <laughs> I call it. I called it. So I'm just getting it out there. Okay? Some micro differences. Some are homeschooled. Some are Christian schooled, and some are public schooled. But we can worship together and enjoy Jesus together. Amen? Amen. And we can celebrate those families that are sending their kids to public school and who are being salty, bright, and aromatic in public schools. Amen? Amen? And we can celebrate families that are saying, man, I want to go this alone. I want to teach this kid in my home. We can celebrate that, that families are wanting to do that. And we can celebrate kids that are sending their, families that are sending their kids to Christian school. We can do that and have different beliefs in the same faith. If God can unite Jew and Gentile and, and, and achieve peace for them with the differences they had, then that should never be a difference for us, ever. We should celebrate that variety in us. I celebrate that we're not the homeschool church. 
We're not the Christian school church, and we're not the public school church. We're just a church. Here's another one. Some of y'all might rely on home remedies for sick people. (laughs) Others might rely on the doctor. (laughs) And that's totally cool. That's okay. That's okay. There might be some essential oils or something like that in there. And that's, that's totally cool. I love the smell of essential oils. And it's obvious those that do as well because we can smell you. But I just, it makes my heart glad. I celebrate it. If he can bring Jew and Gentile together, he can bring the smelly and the aromatic together. Yes. Some might wear fashion clothes. Some might shop at Goodwill. Some might, okay, listen to this. This is a way that the church can sort of divide up in a way that shouldn't. Some might have wife and mom working. Some might have wife and mom at home. Some might have wife and mom working part-time. Some might have wife home wearing a moo-moo just having babies. (laughs) Like the Duggars or something, you know. That's awesome. Man, that's a church. Let's celebrate that. Man, don't ever let that be a reason for dividing you between one another. Celebrate that God's made us different. Man, I love big families, small families, all of those. They're all His. If He can unite Jew and Gentile, He can unite families that have different philosophies about who should work and who doesn't. Some of you might have different philosophies about whether your kids are going to date or not. That shouldn't be a reason to divide you. If your kids are going to court, if you're going to, we're going to have a court courting system, and we're going to have a little candle that we actually have one in our house that the candle has a little spiral, and you can actually turn it to push the candle out a certain length, and you'd have that, your date was like an inch long of candle. I, I don't, we don't have plans of using it. We just have it. It would be a relief for our kids to hear, are you going to use that on us? No. Just one one of those weird things, but you might have that philosophy. We're gonna, our kids are gonna court, or our kids aren't gonna even kiss a boy or girl until they're twenty-one or something. Man, let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate that we have differences in that. Don't let that be something that should separate you. Some folks in our church family are teetotaling, and some are cognac trading. Since we've talked about that today, don't let that separate you. Man, don't let that kind of stuff separate you. That's just dumb. Some immunize, some don't. Now, remember I said we're not picking on anybody. We have different philosophies in this church of people that have different philosophies about that or different thoughts about that. That should never be a reason to separate anybody. We can celebrate one another's decisions and celebrate each other being different. Some people are always late and some people are always on time. I know how hard that might be for us to worship together. We thought about changing our starting time to 10-ish. <laughs> For those of y'all that are always on time, you're like, golly, you should, you should, we should all repent of that. Some of y'all might be Democrat or Republican. Man, I won't even go any further than just saying those words. Some might drive GMC and Chevy or some might drive Ford. All kind of crazy reasons that we can use to divide one another. Those are the micro differences. Those are micros, people. Man, we should be relentless about working through stuff with one another. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Someone says something that offends you. A homeschooler might say something and how much they're enjoying homeschooling that could very easily be insensitive and come off to someone who's sending their kids to school as well, you must not be as good a parent as I am. It can come off that way when it's never intended that way. It's a matter of time, people. And the church has this crazy philosophy. It's not a good one. That we want to be Christian and not work through it, not have any conflict to one another. So I'm going to do the Christian thing and I'm just going to stay away from that person. Or I'm going to do the Christian thing and just move churches. Man, that's not the Christian thing. That's the anti-Christian thing. The Christian thing is to work through what's already been won for us. To walk in what's already been won for us. It's not easy. It's work. That's why I use the word work. It's hard work to work at peace. 
But man, it makes much of the cross. It says that did something here and it did something here. And I'm going to walk in this part of it just as much as I want to walk in that part of it. Here's how it might go down. You might have a workmate or a a friend or a neighbor that tells you, hey, man, what time does your church meet? You're like, "Uh, 10 o'clock? And you're like, why? They said, man, my preacher, pastor, or a deacon at our church, or a family over there, they did something made me so mad, and I'm just, I'm done with them. You're like, okay, cool. We meet at 10 o'clock. You don't have to dress up. Come on, we'll see you then. Don't do that. Don't do that. What you ought to do instead is say, hey, Billy Bob, listen, instead of bailing on that, you ought to walk in what Christ won for you. And they're probably going to give you the thousand-yard stare because they have no idea what you're talking about. You say, hey, you should walk in the rest of the gospel. And they're still going to give you that thousand-yard stare because they don't know what you're talking about. But then you can take them a copy of a sermon. Or you can just turn to Ephesians yourself because you've been so well-equipped this morning. And you can show them the rest of the good news is that there was peace won for you between you and Sally or whoever made you mad, Billy Bob. You should stay and go the distance with them. Man, talk about kingdom advancing. If we're all encouraging one another to stay and work through hard things with one another, personal conflicts that so often separate the church, what a God-glorifying thing in our community where people that don't know the Lord are seeing how the church is moving through conflict and they say, they have something I don't have. They have something that they're calling the cross that somehow has reconciled them to work through things that we can't work through. Man, that's something that can start right here. It doesn't have to start right here. It's already been going. I think we're characterized by this, but we can always grow in this. And we can try and be a beacon in our community, encouraging others. Stay and work through conflict. If the Lord's leading you to come here because you feel like you need it, um, like, like you came to faith in Christ through a church that was pastored by an evangelist, that's what happens a lot in our community. That's what happens a lot with Crosspoint. Folks that came to faith in Christ through, I believe, what we might call a bricked-over revival tent. And I'm not saying that critically. There are churches in our community that I believe are pastored by evangelists. And that God's using in a way where people hear the gospel and they're responding to it in repentance and faith. But then they sort of sit there and languish because they've never really been discipled beyond that. And like, okay, where's the rest of the story? I want to be discipled. I want to grow up in the faith. And they come here. And we can be a compliment to that church. And we can celebrate when people make moves like that. If it's because they want to grow up into a more uh, substantial meal week by week. And want to be discipled in the faith more. Let's celebrate our complimentary role between churches in that way. But let's never celebrate when people leave a church just because of conflict. That's saying the cross isn't good enough. That's saying, you know what, it's good enough for Jew and Gentile, with Jew all the way over here and Gentile all the way over here, but I'm right here and he's right here and it's too much for us. Man, it's the opposite of evangelism in our community when that happens. It says, hey, community, the gospel's not good enough for this conflict. It was for Jew and Gentile, but not enough for this. It's just easier for us to do the Christian thing and move on. That's the anti-Christian thing. Man, encourage that friend and that workmate to work through what Christ has already won. And pray with them. And pray for them. And encourage them. And celebrate those little achievements, those little conversations as they try and work through hard stuff like that. Man, that'll disarm some people too where they say it's not all about you growing your own church. No, it's about God being glorified in the church, being the church in our community, even meeting in different houses. Man, what a great idea. Man, it's the rest of the good news. I think we needed verses 1 through 10 since the garden. We needed Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 since 1 went down in the garden. And we needed verses 11 through 22 since what went went down with Cain and Abel. We've needed it for a long time. But the good news is there, every bit of it. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we had this morning to enjoy the second half of the good news. 
God, I'm thankful for what you won for us, what you earned for us through Christ's work is killed hostility between you and us. That not only is there no hostility, but we actually can come before you and become before the throne of grace boldly and call you Abba. And God, just as much as we enjoy that, this morning at least, maybe for the first time, but definitely this morning we have enjoyed that we can come before brother and sister in Christ and enjoy that we have more in common in Christ than we could ever have different between us. That even the biggest differences were reconciled through the peacemaking work of Christ. God, we enjoyed that this morning. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to share a story with you for the supper. It's a, an application in, uh, of this um, event, this peacemaking work event going down in the book of Acts. If you'd like to follow along, you can, but I'm just going to read a, the better part of a chapter. And um, it may, in fact, it's actually the entire chapter. I think we can handle that. It's kind of a short sermon this morning, so we can handle a chapter. It's a good one, though. Good one for our supper. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Okay, let me just, just tell you, Cornelius, Cornelius is a Gentile. Okay? A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Okay, that's all the address they needed, apparently. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, we've got a Gentile that's sending a little cohort to Joppa to get a Jew, Peter. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Key verse of the day. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, the Gentile, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. God's at work both in the Jew and the Gentile. And he's going to bring them together. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, more Gentiles. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone in another of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Oh, that's good news. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And Peter then begins to preach to them. And here's the first words that come out of his mouth. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I read that story this morning and just enjoyed the beautiful application of what we've talked about today where Jew and Gentile were made one and they spent some time together in a home, likely eating, fellowshipping, enjoying one another. That's what we do every single week that we have the Lord's Supper, which is every single week. We celebrate both the vertical part of the good news and the horizontal part of the good news. Christ accomplished through the cross, reconciling us with our God and reconciling us with each other. We enjoy, as we take the supper each week, we bump elbows with one another another as we share a table with what could be figuratively called Jew and Gentile, but what is in reality just little micro differences between us that were all reconciled through the cross. We share this table elbow to elbow, enjoying both parts of the good news in every Lord's Supper. That's what I hope we'll do in these next few minutes. Let's distribute the elements.